Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, the Museum of the Bible is making an expensive effort to get things right. And Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist top ethicist, is the subject of a new report released this week by his denomination. We begin today with news that one of Focus on the Family's Twitter accounts has been banned from Twitter. Yeah, the Daily Citizen is a publication to focus on the family, and it deals more with political and social and cultural issues. It was blocked from Twitter after posting a tweet about President Biden's appointment of Dr. Rachel Levine as Assistant Secretary for Health in the Department of Health and Human Services. The tweet that Focus on the Family posted was, Dr. Levine is a transgender woman, that is, a man who believes he is a woman. The Daily Citizen said that it is being blocked because of religious belief that God created two genders, male and female, an action that is against Twitter's own discrimination rules. In a blog post, Jim Daly, who's the president of Focus on the Family, said, it seems, according to Twitter, that simply acknowledging a biological fact is now hateful, but he called the hate speech accusation simply not true. And now a lot of groups are joining Focus on the Family in the fight against Twitter. Yeah, they are, specifically the Family Policy Alliance, which is kind of an umbrella group that coordinates the activities of state-level family policy councils. A lot of our listeners might have one in their own state because they're in about 40 states. Uh, They've organized a petition calling on Twitter to reinstate the account. The letter of support, which is signed uh, by Craig DeRoche, the president and CEO of the Family Policy Alliance, says that it, quote, speaks for millions of Americans who all hold to the truth that a person's biological sex cannot be changed. And we will continue to speak this truth freely. He goes on to say that you recently locked out folks on the families, the Daily Citizen, from their Twitter account for speaking this truth. And we all stand beside Focus on the Family. So if you ban them, are we next? the letter asks. The letter also warns the social media site that banning its own users and forcing a homogenization are practices that could ultimately make Twitter irrelevant. And we're seeing these kinds of actions by Twitter and this kind of pushback even more often, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Uh, Focus on the families daily. In fact, Jim Daly, in fact, said in a blog post that tech giants like Twitter are the new emperors of the 21st century, wielding an inordinate amount of power by silencing individuals and organizations that don't comport or cave to their political or social point of view. Uh, And it's not just conservatives, Natasha, that have been facing uh, the wrath of Twitter, uh, though it 
does seem that transgenderism does seem to be the point of conflict. Uh, Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling, who is not a conservative, uh, and tennis great Martina Navratilova, who is a lesbian and a progressive activist on many issues, uh, both oppose transgenderism and both have been censured by Twitter for their positions. Our next story involves Russell Moore, and Russell Moore has been a lightning rod among Southern Baptists because of his concern about Donald Trump. And there's been a move among Southern Baptists to have him removed from his role as president of the SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. But he also has his share of strong supporters. So what's the latest? Well, the latest is the release of a long-awaited report on Monday about Russell Moore and his leadership. A task force had been commissioned to study the SBC's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and it caused the convention's public policy arm, and I'm quoting here directly, a significant distraction from the Great Commission work of Southern Baptists. The task force blamed the ERLC for the loss of more than a million dollars in donations to the Southern Baptist Convention. And it says that Southern Baptists have been withholding their donations uh, in protest of the activity of the ERLC. Well, that doesn't sound very good for more or the ERLC. Well, it doesn't, but there seems to be a little bit more here than meets the eye, at least as much politics as economics in the report. Uh, The report and some dissenters to the report note that in recent years, there's also been a good deal of infighting within the Southern Baptist Convention regarding race, uh, resurgence of neo-Calvinism and other theological issues. Part of the dissatisfaction has been aimed at Russell Moore and the ERLC, who has led that group since about 2013. So what's going to happen with Russell Moore and the SBC? Well, the report does not call for Russell Moore's ouster from that group, but it does recommend that the ERLC no longer make public comments about any political candidate and only address issues that the SBC has already issued resolutions on. In other words, that he can speak for uh, what the SBC's already decided, but not go freelancing on his own. Uh, Moore, in fact, seems already to be taking that advice. A spokeswoman for the ERLC said that Russell Moore would not comment on the report, saying that the agency's board of trustees had instructed him not to speak publicly about it. But I should say that David Prince, the chairman of that board, said that Southern Baptists can see the report for exactly what it is. Uh, And he claims that the ERLC has served Southern Baptists faithfully during a period of uh, political, cultural, and in some cases, denominational chaos. Our next story involves the closure of yet another Christian college. Yeah, Christian colleges are under a lot of pressure these days, and we're seeing closures on an almost monthly basis. This one involves Concordia College, New York, which is a Lutheran college. Uh, A nearby college, Ionia College, will acquire uh, the Concordia College, New York campus, which is in Bronxville. The formal agreement, which is subject to regulatory approval, calls for Concordia to cease classes and close by the fall semester of this year. Uh, The acquisition marks the latest in a series of closures for the Concordia University system, which is run by the Missouri Synod 
of the Lutheran Church in the last eight years or so. Concordia University Ann Arbor was annexed by Concordia University Wisconsin back in 2013. Concordia College Alabama, which is a historically black college, shut its doors about five years ago. And Concordia University in Portland, Oregon, followed that closure with a closure of their own in February of 2020. Uh, we reported on that here at Ministry Watch when it happened. But I should say that six schools will remain open uh, in the Concordia system even after the New York campus closes. So why are so many colleges closing? Well, there are a lot of reasons. Perhaps the biggest reason is demographics. Uh, to put it plainly, we're just not having as many babies as we used to. Americans are having fewer kids, and that means fewer students in colleges and universities. Uh, that's a trend that started decades ago and will continue probably far into the future. Um, secondly, technology has radically transformed colleges and universities. Virtual learning has turned some colleges, such as Liberty University and Grand Canyon University, into these massive operations, and it has siphoned both distance learning and traditional students away from smaller colleges that maybe weren't able to afford the massive technological investments to have a leading position in the distance learning world. Plus, I should say that colleges uh, are expensive now. They're a lot more expensive. They've been the, the cost has been growing at a faster rate than the rest of the economy, and a lot of families are just starting to question whether the value is worth the price. And some young people are choosing technical training, the military, or just going straight into the workforce right out of high school instead of going to college. Yeah, that makes sense. So is this a problem or just a painful transition? Well, yeah, I think uh, it's a little of both. Um, the, the, it's a problem because I think higher education is important. Uh, I, I think that, um, that colleges and universities play a very powerful culture-shaping role and that we need to have Christian presence at the college and university uh, level. And so I think it's a problem from that point of view. But let me also say that, um, you know, I think colleges and universities, even Christian colleges and universities in many cases, have gotten a little bit too big for their britches. They, they're able to tap into a lot of government money. They've stopped listening to the families uh, as closely as they had to in the past because it's the government rather than the families that are becoming uh, important customers of these schools. And, you know, I think that uh, the demographic changes, the technological changes, and these uh, funding uh, paradigms are just kind of catching up with a lot of colleges. So I think there's going to be a shakeout, and I don't think uh, all of that shakeout is going to be good, but maybe some of it will be. Well, let's look at one more story before our break, and that involves the Museum of the Bible. The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. has repatriated to Egypt and Iraq more than 8,000 antiquities it had purchased for the museum without a reliable history of their origin. Yeah, Steve Green is the chairman of the board at the Museum of the Bible. He's the president of Hobby Lobby, and it was the Green family money was responsible, at least for the seed money for building the Museum of the Bible. Uh, he said in a statement on the museum's website that the museum had transferred control of a fine art storage facility that housed about 5,000 uh, ancient Egyptian uh, papyrus fragments to the U.S. government as part of a voluntary administrative process. 
this and that the U.S. government was facilitating delivery of all of these items to Egyptian officials. He said that the museum uh, had initiated that shipment on January the 27th. And as you said, uh, Natasha, about 8,000 individual artifacts uh, were involved there. They were going to go to Baghdad. And then from there, the items would be sort of shipped off to Iraq and Egypt over the course of the next few months. In June, the items were placed under the care of an independent third-party art storage facilities, um, according to Green. This sounds like quite a blow to the Museum of the Bible. Well, it is, though in some ways that blow has already been absorbed, and this is just an attempt to make things right. Steve Green began collecting biblical manuscripts and other artifacts uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, And I should say, by the way, that soon after he started, I visited Hobby Lobby's headquarters in Oklahoma City and saw some of the early collection there, and it was really quite remarkable, even in its early stages. But he quickly ran into problems. Yeah, he did. I, I think that, uh, you know, and I, I, as I said, I've met Steve Greenman a number of times and have a tremendous amount of respect for him. But I think even he would admit that he might have had more money than knowledge when he first got started. Uh, and a couple of years ago, experts began raising concerns about some of the items in the Green Collection. In March of 2020, about almost a year ago now, Green admitted that at the time he and his family began collecting these artifacts um, that would ultimately form the basis for the Museum of the Bible, he had not really fully understood the importance of having a custody chain, what is called the provenance uh, of the items, and uh, there was potential that those antiquities that without a paper trail might in fact have been stolen goods, looted or stolen from from either other museums or perhaps even from the archaeological digs themselves. He he went on to say, Steve Green did, that he uh, trusted the wrong people to guide me and unwittingly dealt with unscrupulous dealers over the years. But I should say that since then, um, the Museum of the Bible and Steve Green, um, they've done a, a remarkable job. They've quietly, painstakingly, and I should say very expensively researched the provenance of the collection and and that these items, these several thousand, 8,000 items that are going back, um, is, um, I think, uh, a, a sign of real integrity on the part of Green and the museum. Well, Warren, we have to take a break here. But when we return, we'll look at how Compassionate International is going to celebrate the Super Bowl. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Let's continue with the story I promised before the break about Compassion International's efforts to raise child sponsorships during the Super Bowl. How is this going to work? 
Well, Raymond James Stadium in Tampa will be less than half full uh, when the hometown Buccaneers take on the Kansas City Chiefs on Super Bowl 60 this Sunday. But Kansas City Chiefs uh, fullback Anthony Sherman hopes that generous donors will fill the stadium in a different way by making a donation to Compassion International that's equivalent to the ticket price that they would have paid if they could have attended the Super Bowl. Now, of course, football tickets are not cheap, so if the promotion works, uh, they'll end up paying for the sponsorship for what they hope will be tens of thousands of kids all around the world. Wow, that sounds like an interesting plan. And this plan is pretty directly tied to the COVID crisis. Yeah, in normal non-pandemic times, uh, campaigns at big group events like Christian concerts, for example, it's one of the ways that Compassion has found sponsors for kids in the past. But COVID-19 has restricted large gatherings. They were pretty much shut down for all of their concert promotional activities during the year 2020. And as many as 70,000 kids are now unsponsored, Compassion said. So the group uh, has turned kind of this new fundraising focus towards the empty seats at large sporting venues and asking people to take the unspent money and redirect that to a good cause. Uh, Warren, I'm not going to do a whole bunch of math on this program, but I understand that Americans spend quite a lot of money on their football experience. Yeah, we do. Um, Compassion estimates that a typical game day experience for four people costs $541. That's an average of about $88 a ticket. So that's close to $400 just for the tickets. And then there's parking and food and programs and all the other stuff that you would do at a normal football game. I guess that does bring the total up pretty close to $541. Super Bowl tickets, of course, are a lot more expensive than that. In fact, Compassion estimates that even if you're just doing a party at home, that you'll spend $88 on snacks, drinks, decorations, and other merchandise related to the big game. So again, Compassion estimates that that same $500 could provide up to a year's worth of food, nutritional supplements, and other material for children and families all around the world. Well, another event that was shut down by COVID this year was the March for Life, and it took place just this last Friday. Uh, Both the logistics and the tone were quite different this year. Yeah, they were uh, a mostly virtual version of the 48th annual pro-life gathering uh, took place in Washington, D.C. last Friday, January the 29th. And most of the messages there were not live, but pre-recorded speeches from all manner of people, lawmakers, faith leaders, and former football star Tim Tebow uh, was uh, kind of the keynote for the event. He pushed for unity and made appeals to President Biden to enact pro-life legislation. The March of Life director is uh, Jean Mancini. Uh, She kicked off the event by announcing that the theme was going to be Together Strong, Life Unites. Well, after the events of recent weeks, I imagine that this theme of unity really struck a chord. Well, I think that's what they were aiming for. And I should say, though, that for all the good that March for Life does and has done over the years to raise the visibility of the pro-life cause, um, they might have actually contributed to the divisiveness last year when they invited Donald Trump to be the speaker, um, despite the fact that the Trump administration uh, spent more money uh, on Planned Parenthood 
last year than any previous president. Planned Parenthood is, of course, the nation's largest abortion provider. And further, after years of decline in the number of abortions due in part to the success of the pro-life movement's efforts to use love and care for women to change hearts and minds, we've actually seen probably a bit of a flattening and maybe even a rise in the number of abortions over the course of the past year. That's largely due to chemical abortions, which have exploded in number um, under the Trump administration. Now, Warren, for our next story, we're going to go from one side of the country, Washington, to the other, California. Saddleback Church pastor Rick Warren had apologized for a children's Sunday school curriculum video that used Asian cultural stereotypes to teach kids about the Bible. Yeah, the video was intended to be a humorous video that the church produced about four years ago, but it was only recently um, sort of unveiled or uh, rolled out in the church. Uh, Michelle Amy Reyes, who is the vice president for the Asian American Christian Collaborative on Twitter described the video as using Asian culture as a prop for slapstick humor. The video, she said, blurs and dishonors distinctions and categories of Asian culture. In it, she said, uh, one of Saddleback's pastors was wearing a Chinese shirt and was making kung fu sounds and pretending uh, to make sushi that he then spit out. Well, that doesn't sound good. But to Rick Warren's credit, he didn't try to defend it at all, and he apologized quickly and sincerely. Yeah, Rick Warren, in a statement uh, issued last Sunday, apologized and said that he was upset and embarrassed by the racially offensive content of the video. It was immediately taken down, he said. And he went on to say this in his statement, my instant fear was that the thousands of Asian American children who are part of our church family would feel made fun of and that their families and so many others would rightfully be offended. And he added this, this is the very kind of cultural and racial insensitivity that we're trying to eradicate in our church family. It's unchristlike, demeaning, and it's never appropriate to use a stereotype to teach. Now, Warren, COVID continues to be in the news, and you have a few quick updates. Yeah, I do. First, a survey of Churches of Christ uh, members done by the denomination's newsletter found that about three-quarters of uh, that denomination said that they intend to get vaccinated or already have. And you have another related story. Yeah, I do. Uh, from the National Association of Evangelicals, its president, Walter Kim, is encouraging evangelicals and others to get the vaccination, and he's encouraging member churches to offer up their churches to local authorities as vaccination sites. He said that churches, because they're, of course, spread out all over the country and are often not used as heavily during the week, are unique resources that could aid in the distribution of the vaccine and the eradication of the COVID virus. And you've got one other COVID update. Yeah, uh, while nonprofits uh, were included in coronavirus relief legislation, a group of about 75 large charitable organizations in this country sent a letter to President Biden and top congressional leaders urging them to enact provisions that would specifically address the needs of nonprofits. Within the letter, uh, this group of 75 leaders acknowledged that the Families First Act, the CARES Act, and the COVID relief law 
do contain provisions that help charitable nonprofits, but they go on to say this. We note that these acts often did so by inserting nonprofits into existing or predetermined programs designed for for-profit businesses that face very different challenges, and they hope that more aid to help nonprofits do their work will be forthcoming. Well, Warren, we have to take another break. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Up next, small nonprofits might have the opportunity to be nimble and quick in their operations, but one wouldn't know it by looking at their digital operations. Yeah, according to a new study uh, based largely uh, on organizations that have fewer than 100 employees, many of these nonprofits are missing opportunities to spread their message online. Fewer than half of responding nonprofit managers reported that they actually even had anything resembling a digital marketing strategy. That's according to uh, the uh, digital technology company called Tap Network, based in Wilmington, Delaware, and the San Francisco-based civil society organization consultancy called TechSoup. Most managers are conservative when it comes to advertising on the web. Only 23% use paid ads, and of those, four out of five spend less than $500 a month on paid advertising. Is that a bad thing? Well, that's a really good question because, you know, you remember earlier in the program, we talked about how Focus on the Family had one of its accounts banned on Twitter. And, you know, I have often said that I think one day Christian ministries will come to repent of every dollar that they spend on social media. I'm not sure we're to that point yet. And of course, social media can do uh, some good things. But uh, I remember Rich Stearns, who for many years was the president of World Vision, used to say to his staff that a million uh, followers on Twitter won't feed a hungry child. Now, what you can do with those million followers might help you feed hungry children. But there's just a lot of problems with social media right now. For one thing, if you post material on Facebook, for example, uh, they want you to stay on their site. They don't want you to go to your site. So there's a, uh, a, a lot of problems with social media in general these days. So I would have to say to these small ministries that are not spending money on social media, go slowly, be careful, because we really don't know what the future of the social media landscape looks like. 
Now, Warren, one of the unique features of Ministry Watch is the database of ministries. And this week, you released a list of ministries that received a transparency grade of F, which is, of course, a failing grade. Can you tell us how you arrived at that grade and why you think it's important to publish that list? Yeah, well, Ministry Watch stands for transparency and accountability. That's why Ministry Watch assigns a transparency grade to each of the nearly 800 ministries in our database. We use three criteria. Does the organization release its Form 990s to the public? Does it get a reviewed or audited financial statement and release it to the public? And thirdly, is it a member of the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability? If the answer to all three of these questions is yes, then that ministry gets an A grade. But if the answer to all three of those questions is no, then it gets a transparency grade of F. Well, that's pretty clear. So how many ministries got an F? Well, about 25 ministries got an F this year. That's uh, 25 out of about 800. So only about 3% of the ministries in our database. Last year, that number was about 20, but we only had about 450 ministries in our database. So the number is actually shrinking when measured as a percentage of the total. And by the way, we recommend not donating to a ministry that is not transparent. We hope that donors who are currently donating to those ministries that are uh, uh, getting an F grade will redirect their dollars elsewhere. And the financial pressure uh, that puts on ministries will cause these ministries to be more transparent in the future. And by the way, you can find that list by going to the Ministry Watch uh, website. It's right on the front page. And finally today, not all ministries are bad actors. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the vast majority of ministries are doing really great work and are totally open and transparent about it. Uh, our weekly Ministries Making a Difference column highlights some of that work. Uh, this week, we feature Billy Graham's Rapid Response Team and also Mercy Chefs, which has deployed mobile kitchens to Fultondale, Alabama, where a 14-year-old high school freshman was recently killed, and there was tremendous damage because of a series of terrible storms there. We also feature Chi Alpha Campus Ministries, which is a college discipleship ministry sponsored by the Assemblies of God, and uh, several ministries that are sponsored by the Church of the Nazarene that provide care to those displaced by the war between Armenia and Azerbaijan. They do great work all around. Well, that's good news, and that brings us to a close. Our producers today are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Bobby Ross Jr., Alejandra Molina, Jack Jenkins, Bob Smatima, and Ann Stike. And thanks to our friends at the Nonprofit Times and Religion Unplugged for contributing material to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.